I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I told you that we were going to move through this letter to the Corinthians at a pretty reasonable pace, and I feel like we have. I think that some of these texts, you could certainly break them up into small little portions and go through a couple verses at a time, but I think you almost get lost a little bit from the, the grander point that's being made. So we're trying to cover these uh, point by point to put together the scriptures in a way, in one little session on a Sunday morning, we can take something of value out of it. We're going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, and read through the first part of verse 9. So 1 through the first part of 9. If that seems strange to you, the numbers that represent the verses in the Bible are not inspired. Those are just uh, translators' uh, work to make sure that we can reference these things. Uh, the scriptures itself are, and for our purposes this morning, we will stop at the first part of verse 9. So here we are, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous, and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is where we will uh, stop this morning and pick up here in a couple weeks. I, I will be uh, gone, Lord willing, next uh, weekend and then uh, return. Um, and sometimes when you preach a text like this, it's good to get away uh, from the hate mail. And uh, no, I'm just joking. Uh, it's never been quite that bad. But uh, this is, this is a, a text that could be summed up rather simply with the subtitle. Now, if you look at the subtitle in uh, many of your Bibles, which is, again, the translator's work to try to explain what the text says, this is what the subtitle in my Bible says. It's very simple. Do not sue the brethren. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty simple, isn't it? That's pretty straightforward. Do not sue the brethren. Brethren just being the translator's fancy word for brothers. Okay, the family is what it is. Uh, do not sue the family, which reminds me of the sort of language that my dad used to give to my brother and I when we were uh, little. 
Um, If any of you had siblings growing up, I, I assume many of you did, perhaps you heard your parent at one point or another say, do not do that to your brother, right? Have you ever heard words like that? Do not do that to your sister. Stop it. You know, it's just very simple. And when you're a child, you get very little explanation for why you should not do that thing. Uh, it's usually self-evident, and there's not a lot of exposition involved with what... But sometimes mom and dad just look and say, stop it, okay? And sometimes they just say, do not treat your brother, or that was me, do not treat your sister that way. Don't do that. And it's kind of self-explanatory from there. Now, in a sense, that would be good enough for this uh, text that we could just observe the Lord's Supper and move on. But you have to remember that Paul is not about the business of making new rules for the church. So when we have something which is, in effect, a command for the church, that's what this basically manifests itself into. Don't do this thing. We have to understand Paul is then taking the responsibility upon himself to explain and reason with us to see why theologically, why doctrinally, it's absurd to sue your brother or sister in Christ. If he didn't take the time to do that, then effectively the New Testament would just be a bunch of rules. But Paul does not want all of these churches and our church as well to simply conform to a bunch of rules. He wants us to live our lives like Jesus, like Jesus called us to, by our minds being transformed. So in other words, in a sense, Paul is going to tell them in these verses that we've read, you should have already been able to deduce from what you know to be true about God, that's theology, And from what you know to be true about practicing righteousness, doctrine, you should have already deduced from that that you should not sue your brothers or sisters in Christ. You should not need a special rule. You should have already figured this out. So we're going to break this up into three sections. Um, We'll move through it kind of rapidly. I am not going to call the sermon, Do Not Sue the Brethren. Because that sounds like a rule. And I don't think that this is uh, a new rule from Paul. So I have chosen a different title for the sermon. It is The Value of a Dollar. That's what we're going to call this. The Value of a Dollar. Because that's the theological or the doctrinal understanding of what is being applied here. All right? So, point number one this is talking about business. And we must state that to avoid error, or else. We will leave ourselves open to false teachers doing what false teachers do, which is exploit weaknesses in our understanding, not weaknesses in the Bible, but weaknesses in our understanding to manipulate us for their own means. Understand, and I hope it'll become self-evident why this is important. Paul is talking about business. Let's see that in the text. Verse one says, do any of you having a matter against another. The word matter is the word in the Greek pragma. We read the English word matter, okay? Uh, But in the Greek, which is how this was originally written, Paul is writing the word pragma, which, you know, sounds almost like pragmatism, but but, uh, pragma meaning business. Comes from the root word of proso, which means to exercise or to busy oneself. 
What he's saying simply is, um, you might, in your daily conduct with other believers, have normal business financial arrangements with them. I would say in our congregation and in most congregations of any size, those sorts of things are true. Those sorts of things happen. You may say, well, I don't know about that. I don't enter any, any, any kind of contract with, with lots of other Christians. Well, maybe not, but certainly uh, many people do. When you borrow something from someone, it's a form of business. When you take something out and you use something that someone else is using, it's a, fun, it's a, it's a matter, it's a, it's, a, it's a business thing. There are objects involved, there are resources involved, there is money involved. Perhaps uh, you, you rent something from someone else or you loan something to someone else. Maybe you contract someone to do a job or a project for you. Maybe someone is an employer and someone is an employee. These are basic kinds of human relationships. And we are not to take the approach in the church of, well, don't ever do that because, you know, you don't want things to go bad and then you've got a, an issue. That's not, that, that's not the counsel. Christian people ought to be able to trust one another to engage with integrity in normal, everyday business with each other. That should be a regular, you know, simple thing when there's a need for it. So he says, dare any of you having a matter, which is not the same as saying your brother has sinned against you. We've dealt with that in the prior chapter. There might be sin involved, but this is specifically talking about business, having a financial matter, right? Uh, go to law before the unrighteous. There's another language hint here, and it comes in verse seven, and then again in verse eight. In the New King James, the word cheated, or cheat, is used. Cheated, it says in verse eight. Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? I'm sorry, that's verse seven. Verse eight, nor you yourselves do wrong and cheat. So that word cheat means apostero, and it, it shows up five times in the New Testament as the word defraud defraud. As a matter of fact, one of those uses is Mark chapter 10, verse 19, where Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler, and he recites part of the Ten Commandments. And in part of the Ten Commandments, he says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, we know that one, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and then this one, do not defraud. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Now, if you think back to the Exodus, you probably don't remember a command in Exodus chapter 20 that says, do not defraud. Anybody learn that passage that way in the Old Testament? You know, we hear obey your parents and do not lie, but anybody recite it, do not defraud? Jesus is using that word to describe the commandment that talks about coveting. Coveting. In other words, wanting something material that belongs to your brother or sister. Wanting something, a mule, a house, an oxen, that belongs to your sister. He's summarizing that whole long command because it's, it's a link, several sentences. He's summarizing it in Mark chapter 10 with the word, do not defraud. So point number one, this is talking about business. Here's another place the same word is used. James chapter five, verse four. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. Same word here. So it's talking about money 
that they were supposed to pay and then after the work was done they refused to. It's important to understand that this in the context of the letter to Corinth is a message about money and repercussions. Why is that important? Think about this. If we make this about more than money, we could justify not going to the law with crimes that should be brought to the law. And that's how this verse gets manipulated and used in a way that it shouldn't get used. If you say, well, this could be talking about child abuse. Someone with an issue against another. And the Bible says you're not supposed to go to law against a brother. Now you have used a passage that is not remotely discussing something heinous like that. And you're using it as justification to let false teachers get away with evil. It's not talking about assault or exploitation in any kind of physical sense or abuse or murder or even criminal behavior that the law has declared is within the realm for a just society. It's not talking about those things. This is talking about civil business between people. And if you don't recognize that, if you make it broader than that, you will open up the scriptures to being misused by people for the protection of evil. And that is certainly not Paul's intention. Um, the Lord, the Lord that you serve, loves justice. He loves justice. This passage is about pursuing what is just in business relationships with believers in an honorable way. Notice the passage does not say if your brother has done something unjust or defrauded you in business, just forget about it and let it go. That's not what it says. It says the better way would be to have one person among you mediate and yield to the mediation and resolve it and move on. But it doesn't pretend like you should just act like unjust things are no big deal. The Lord loves justice. It would be laughable if the consequences were not often so tragic, it would be laughable that some leaders in some places have turned this passage into a weapon to deprive people of justice and cover up crime and abusive behavior. That is the opposite of the intent that Paul has in mind. The Lord loves justice. I want to hit you kind of machine gun style with some verses on this to make it clear. Here's Deuteronomy 16 verse 19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. Deuteronomy 24, 17. You shall not pervert justice due to the stranger or the fatherless. Two places in the law. Do not pervert justice. Here's the Psalms in the poetry of the Old Testament. He, the Lord, loves righteousness and justice. Psalm 37, 28. For the Lord loves justice. Here's the wisdom literature of the Proverbs. Proverbs 2, verse 8. He guards the path of justice and preserves the way of the saints. God stands guard over the path of justice. Proverbs 16, verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. Better to have a little and be righteous in your conduct than to pervert justice and have vast revenues. That's 
Proverbs 16, 8. Proverbs 21, 15. It is a joy for the just. If you're a Christian, that's what we are striving to be. The just, the righteous. It is a joy for the just to do justice. But destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. And finally, Proverbs 28, verse 5. And this is a sampling. We could have done many more. Justice, righteousness, is a central theme throughout all of Scripture. But Proverbs 28, 5. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. They get all of it. Because in the Lord, justice and righteousness is found. So, This is talking about business. If someone in this congregation engages in criminal behavior and you tell me about it, I will expect you to face the criminal consequences of your behavior with integrity. Okay? There is no attorney-client privilege when it comes to confessing criminal behavior. Because the Christian is not looking for a way out of the consequences of their sin. A Christian is repentant and facing the consequences of their sin with humility and integrity. There is no get out of jail free card because it happened to be another Christian that I did something awful to. Or it happened a few years ago or whatever else it is. We have, at least in the nine years almost that I have been a pastor here, informed the police of things. We have told people, just so you know, going to inform the police. (laughs) I'm still here to help you spiritually. I'm still here to pastor you. But we're telling the police about this and you should too because this is wrong. So we all need to understand there is no biblical mandate, let alone leeway, to cover up criminal behavior. There is not. It doesn't exist. If you feel otherwise, see me afterwards and I'll be happy to listen to your challenge, but I don't think you'll convince me otherwise. You better come with an argument from the scriptures and you can't use this passage to do it. Point number one, this is talking about business. Point number two, Paul's second point. You ought to be able to handle these things. That's the second point. You ought to be able to handle these things. His first reason, we are going to judge the world and angels. That's verses two and three. Now, let me be very clear. We do not have the details of what he is talking about, but we can draw inferences from the scripture. He's not talking about in this lifetime because he specifically says, if we're going to judge the world and angels, then how much more ought we be able to handle the stuff existing in this lifetime? So he's looking future, forward, to the kingdom of God. And I'll give you a a few verses to echo this. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. This is the promise of Jesus. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne That's the word of Jesus. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That's a pretty incredible promise. I'll be happy just to enter into the kingdom of God. I have no expectation of sitting on any thrones. Nevertheless, uh, this is the kind of language Jesus uses to promise a reward and victory to his people. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. Paul writes, If we endure, we will also reign with Christ. 
Reign means to rule, to have authority with him. Revelation 2.26, another promise of Jesus in those church letters. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. There is, and this is going to have to be enough to explain it, there is a degree to which in the kingdom of God, whether we're talking the millennial kingdom of God or the eternal kingdom of God after the day of the Lord, there is an extent to which Christians either through Jesus Christ or in conjunction with him will exercise authority in the next lifetime. Not this one, but in our resurrected lifetime. I don't have the details of that. I can't explain it. Uh, They're not described in any details in the text. And yet over and over again, not just here, we are told by the Lord Jesus, by Paul, that we will have as part of our citizenship in the kingdom of God, authority, rule. Whether that's just proxy through our kinship with Christ and he will exercise ultimate authority or whether we will have some practical jurisdiction, I have no idea. But the promise is the promise and that's what Paul's referring to. And he's simply saying, if you're going to be trusted with this kind of authority, either by proxy through Christ or in your own jurisdiction, you ought to be able to handle who owes who a couple of thousand dollars. You ought to be able to figure this out. You ought to be able to handle this. Second point, sub-point under this. This is embarrassing. You ought to be able to handle this because this is embarrassing. He says in verse four, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to become your judges? You've got an internal problem. Someone has borrowed something and not returned it. Someone borrowed a vehicle and crashed it and now there's some dispute over the repairs. Uh, Someone's renting a house and another person is not paying. Whatever it is, I don't know. There's some internal dispute and rather than go to the wisdom found in the people of God who are going to rule and judge angels, we're going to the local courthouse and we're going to get the lawyers involved. Now, you know, uh, Jay Lynn, forgive me, but... In most, in most places in the United States, the lawyers are not the most highly esteemed as credible, you know, upworthy with integrity individuals, right? Jalen's going to change that for all of us, okay? Uh, one little case at a time. But this is what he means. You're going to go to outside authorities who rule against the church all the time, who issue verdicts against God's righteousness all the time. And you're going to say, because there's a little bit of money involved, we want you guys to come sort this out inside the body of Christ. Like, how embarrassing is this? That's why he says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Which if you remember from a few chapters ago, and I don't expect you to, but in verse 4, he's given them a hard time about disunity in their body. And at one point, he specifically pauses, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, to say, I am not writing this to shame you. What does that tell you about this chapter? Be ashamed! <laughs> you ought to be ashamed of this! You know, you don't have to be ashamed about getting the teaching thing wrong. That was a learning thing. I've instructed you. I'm trying to help you get that right. There's no shame in learning and growing when you've done something wrong. But this is embarrassing. Because you should have known better. You know enough about God. 
You know enough about the family of God to know that this is not what should have happened here. This is shameful. He says, verse five, and almost, you can hear almost the mocking tone. Is, is there not a wise man among you? Not even one? You got a whole congregation of people to appeal to here, to resolve some conflict about money or possessions. In the whole congregation, there's not a single person that the both of you trust to have the integrity and the wisdom to listen to both of your cases and to tell you what should be done in any kind of binding way. There's not a single person in the whole church that you trust more than the local judge who doesn't care anything about God's word? I mean, that should really gnaw at us. Our judges are elected officials at the local level. So when someone sues another person inside the church for some material problem, you are effectively saying, I trust the official elected by all the pagan people of the world to do a better job than any of the Christians here among us with making a right and wrong verdict here. Because that's what this is. It's a right and wrong. What's right? What's wrong? That's it. This is embarrassing. And then he says again, and I, I almost hear again my father's voice in this. Brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers. Uh, when you were kids, maybe you were all well behaved with your siblings and you, you never had a, a problem. Uh, Nathan and I did pretty well, I think, by and large, mostly by avoiding each other for big parts of our life, unfortunately. Uh, uh, but, but when we were together, there were occasions when we were younger when we might get into some sort of argument. And it was okay if we were at home, but nothing get my dad and my mom to shut it down faster than if we got in some kind of argument out in public. Why? Because it is embarrassing to be <laughs> the father of, of two growing young men and to watch them go out in public and make a scene bickering between one another. You know, it's like, dad is right there. Solve this, you know? Just... And I, I've had those, and I'm not going to give you the details because I want my children to still love me, but I've had those things with my, you know, you, you get in, you, the kids come into the, the bedroom or the living room, wherever it is, and so-and-so did this, and so-and-so did this, and yeah, but they did this, and yeah, but you said this, and, and pretty soon it's like there's a whole casework here of extenuating circumstances, and everyone's got a massive legal profile for everything, everything that they said, and it's like they expect you to mediate all of it, and you're like... Can't you just love your, your brother or your sister enough to get along? I mean, can't you? What is this nonsense here? Like, we're, I feel like we're in the people's court. What is this? You know? And I, that's kind of what, that's the voice that I hear Paul speaking with when I read this, when he says, but brother goes to law against brother. And this before unbelievers. In other words, this is embarrassing. Um, the failure that Paul refers to in verse 7 because he says therefore it is already an utter failure for you that failure is the Greek phrase halos hetema and what it means is total defeat halos meaning whole holy 
completely, not wholly and sanctified, but total. And hetama meaning total defeat, total loss. What he's saying here is, it doesn't matter who wins the case when it goes to the court. Everybody has lost. It is a total loss. That's what he means. Somebody might walk away skipping because they got their few thousand bucks or their car got fixed or whatever it is. But for the body of Christ, it is already a total defeat once you go there, regardless of who wins. That's what he's saying. The failure is not in the pursuit of justice. He's not saying it's wrong to pursue justice in these things. The failure is the pursuit of justice to the public shame of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus, which is attached to the church. By the way, do you feel the responsibility of that weight? Do you feel that? If you are a Christian... It should strike you every once in a while about the weight of bearing the name of Jesus Christ. That's what being a Christian is, bearing the name of Christ. And in community with one another, it should strike you. You know, I I do a lot in sports, so forgive me for all the sports analogies. But every once in a while, when a coach is just really fed up about something, some awful behavior on their team, every once in a while, they'll, they'll... Make an appeal to the name on the front of the jersey as opposed to the name on the back. Because on the front of the jersey, it says whatever team you're playing for. And on the back is where some some teams have their last name printed. In other words, it should matter to you as Christians the weight of the name that you bear. Because you bear it publicly. That's what baptism does. It's a public profession of faith. And if you're going to take the name of the sinless Son of God who died on a cross to save you, who has made you these promises of eternity, if you're going to take that name and you're going to live your life with no concern whatsoever for what you do with it, that's shameful. The name of Jesus which is attached to the church is more valuable than money and possessions. That's what I mean when I say the value of the dollar being, being the title for today's sermon. Jesus' name is more valuable than money. That's when he says in verse 7, Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Wrong is the word for Harm here, understood by the context, but it's talking about financial harm. For instance, this is Jesus, same word in Matthew chapter 20, verse 13. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, this is the parable, some of you will recognize the parable. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. That's the word. Did you not agree with me for a denarius for a day's work? You remember that parable? That's the context of harm here. I'm not doing you any harm. It's not talking about exploitive abuse. This is talking about money. Wouldn't it be better to accept some sort of financial harm than to trash the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in public? That's what he's saying. So point number one, it's talking about business. Point number two, you ought to be able to handle this. You're going to have ruling responsibilities with Jesus 
This is embarrassing. The name of Jesus is worth more than money. And then point number three here. If money and possessions are more valuable to you than righteousness, you are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. You are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is not new information. This simply echoes what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You can't love money and God because you can't serve two masters. And it's going to force you, if you love money, it's going to force you to go back on any commitment you've made to God. And if you love God, guess what? There will be times when it will cost you money. When you will sacrifice financially. Jesus says you can't love God and money. You can't serve two masters. Same, same passage. You're going to have to choose. If money and possessions are more valuable to you than righteousness, you're not a Christian. Can't you hear the echo of that proverb in that? Proverbs 16, verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. Here is verses 8 and 9. No, you're not willing to be cheated. No, instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You think you can get away with that? <sighs> Some, sometimes people will come to another Christian and they'll ask, you know, how do I know that I'm going to heaven? I believe in Jesus. I believe in what the Bible tells me, but my life is just full of sin and I can't seem to get away from it. And I've got these things going on. So can I go to heaven while I'm living openly in adultery? Or what, how do I know I'm going to heaven? And I've said many times, and I will continue to echo this until somebody shuts me up on it, but I don't have a test, you know? I don't have a, a scanner to put on you and, and to see whether or not the Spirit of God is active in your heart and in your life. Christian, I can't tell you if you are truly saved or not. What I can tell you is that when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, they receive the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God begins to work in their heart to convict them of sin. As they learn more about the Bible, what we're doing right now. The Spirit of God works in a person's life if the Spirit of God is present in that person's life, if that person is a Christian. And so Paul, his answer to the, this kind of question is to say over and over again, not just here, in letter after letter after letter in the New Testament to say, look, be sure of this. Those who make a practice out of sin will not inherit the kingdom of God, will not go to heaven. They're not Christians. They may intellectually say they believe the right things. They may think those things are accurate and right. But when the Spirit of God possesses the life of a person in whom God is working, that Spirit does not let a person live in unrepentant sin without dealing with it. 
And here, and this is why we paused in the middle of this verse, the middle of verse nine, because it's a launching point into the, into the, the issues that come next. But it starts in this chapter with this kind of wrongdoing, financial harm. If you're exploiting people and cheating people and always trying to manipulate things to get the best deal for yourself, even when it requires a compromise of integrity, just know the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You know, I, I, I will commend to you to take a close and careful look at, at the life of Pastor Steve. And I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but I hope that you will. Let me tell you something about Steve. Steve will go to the extreme to make sure that if anyone could have any complaint against them, he goes to that person and seeks out reconciliation and repentance and any kind of recompense. He is careful to take uh, any kind of gift or reward. And, and you, brother, you've said you've grown at that over the years, right? Because it's important to him that he is righteous and acts in integrity in all of his dealings. And I'm sure Steve is not the only one like that in our congregation, but he's a pastor and he's not me that I can commend to you for an example. Better to, to experience some loss and some harm. Better to deal with some financial, you know, shortfalls than to embarrass the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the whole parable of the rich young ruler, which I don't have time to go into, so I won't right now. I'll spare you the next 15 minutes, which is what I would like to do. Okay, so give me credit. I would love to go to Mark chapter 10, where Jesus confronts this rich man who wants to say that all of my conduct is good. So his question to Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, if you would be perfect, if you would be righteous, sell your possessions, give it to the poor and come follow me because the Lord knew that to that man, the value of his possessions meant more to him than his righteous standing before God. So our third point, if money and possessions are more valuable to you than righteousness, you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. When Jesus saw the rich man walk away, what does it say? It's Luke 18, 24. Jesus, when he saw that he left, became very sorrowful and he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Money, what we do to get it and what we do to keep it says a lot about the condition of our soul. Is our heart set on the kingdom of God or is it set on the things of this world? It can't be both. Your money is not worth anything to you in heaven. This is Peter in Acts chapter 8 verse 20. Remember when the guy, Simon, sees a miracle performed and he says, hey, I, I want to be able to do this thing too. Can you give me the ability? He says, I can buy this, this power from you if you'll take money and give me this. What does Peter say with him? Acts 8.20, he says, may your money perish with you because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. May your money perish with you. It's, it's not worth anything in heaven. It'll die with you. Now, I want to conclude by saying I don't know of any prohibition in the Bible not to 
ever sue an organization or another individual. I don't know of any prohibition like that. I know that there are many Christians who believe that. Um, In my earnest study of the scriptures, I don't see that. But what I can tell you is it is absolutely wrong and shameful to have any kind of dispute with your brother, with your sister and the family of God and to not do whatever you can to resolve it without the world realizing just how selfish and petty the people of God can be. We're going to do something here that is pretty important. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in a second. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're going to drink a little bit of juice. We're going to eat a little bit of bread. And when we do that, what are we remembering? We're remembering the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Just think about that. Your soul wasn't bought with money. It was bought with the sinless Son of God pouring out His life to save you. Your soul was not redeemed with money. But, and you could ask Judas about this, it can be forfeited by it. You ought to do some long and hard thinking about what you value as a Christian. Not what you say you value, but what your life demonstrates you value. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word and the instruction here. Help us not to behave shamefully to the world around us. Father, now as we've received this study from your word about the importance of the name of Jesus and the honor and integrity that we should carry in our lives as we carry it, help us to remember why we get to bear the name of Jesus, the the cost at which it came. Help us to receive this Lord's Supper as you've commanded us to receive it uh, with earnestness with sobriety, with a a sense of the weight uh, that was paid at the cross because of our sin. I thank you for your son. I thank you for our freedom. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.